Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Pleased to welcome you to our election-themed event here tonight at the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. My name is Adam Ramey. I'm Assistant Professor of Political Science here at NYU Abu Dhabi. And what I often refer to myself as the Lone Ranger American politics uh, expert. And so every four years, I feel like I get all these knocks on my door uh, asking me about the U.S. elections and their impact for the region and for the globe more generally. And this year, more than ever, is uh, perhaps one of the most consequential uh, elections of, of a generation at least. And I'm really excited tonight to be able to moderate this discussion. And Isaac Newton was famous for having said, if I have seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. And I have two giants here with me tonight. And I'm pleased to introduce them. And I, on my left here, I have Dan Benheim. Dan is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He was a former speechwriter for Vice President Joseph Biden, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and then Senator John Kerry. He teaches uh, classes at NYU and, and at George Washington University, and I think is uniquely qualified to be able to give us some insight, uh, particularly with respect to uh, foreign policy and a potential uh, Clinton administration. And on my right, I'm, I'm delighted to invite uh, and to introduce Abdul Khalik Abdullah. Abdul Khalik is a, uh, a retired political science professor and is the chairperson of the uh, Arab Council. Council for Social Sciences. He's a frequent commenter on uh, regional and international relations and in local newspapers and, and, and throughout international media. So it's really quite an, uh, an amazing opportunity tonight. Our format for tonight is going to be uh, very straightforward. Uh, each of our distinguished guests is going to give an opening statement somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 minutes each. And then I've prepared a series of questions to generally uh, focused around uh, the global impact uh, of a potential uh, Clinton or Trump presidency, with particular interest toward the region, but, but, but thinking globally as well. And then in the second part of the program, we'll transition to an audience Q&A, and you can feel free to uh, ask questions of either of our panelists. And though I'm not a, uh, a, an expert on the, the foreign relations side of things, if you have domestic-related questions, I'm happy to field questions at that time as well. And without further ado, I will turn over to, uh, to Dan. Welcome. It's great to be here in the UAE, and it's great to be at NYU. I actually began my week teaching at NYU New York in, in the mothership, so two NYU campuses in three days is pretty good as far as I'm concerned. So as Adam said, I am Dan Benayim. I'm a fellow at the Center for American Progress. I'm a recovering speechwriter and policymaker, having worked for uh, Vice President Biden, uh, Secretary Kerry when he was a senator, and for Hillary Clinton. And I come here uh, with the advice of uh, David Brooks, New York Times columnist David Brooks, who wrote a book about becoming an intellectual, a public intellectual. And he said, the first step is to speak boldly, and the second step is to be completely wrong. When I visited uh, the UAE back in January, uh, I said with uh, great certainty that there is no way that Trump was going to be the Republican nominee and uh, absolutely no way that he was going to be the next president. So I'm already half wrong, and I think that we as Americans and we as denizens of Washington and professionals in American politics and foreign policy have a lot of self-reflection ahead to understand exactly what's happened in our country. But I do still think that I'm right about the second part of this, and I do want to put uh, some faith in an old saying uh, from an unlikely source, which is Winston Churchill, who said, Americans always do the right thing after exhausting all the other things. <laughs> um, 
So in addition to uh, acknowledging my uh, fallibility, I also want to let you know that I'm not objective in this race. I'm actually a Hillary supporter. You know, the world as it's been described in this American election is like a cracked mirror or like a circus mirror. And in this sort of strange circus mirror, somehow Mexico is a place of criminals and rapists, but also a manufacturing paradise where all of America's jobs have gone. It's both of these things. Brussels, instead of a sleepy city in Northern Europe, is a hellhole, as Donald Trump said. Russia is always misunderstood, innocent, even after it's been proven guilty. So it's, it's a very strange world. And I keep thinking of the words of this Egyptian newscaster who basically said, yes, America first, which is Donald, Trogan, Donald Trump's slogan, but who second? So I want to use my remarks here to, at the opening to just basically talk about three things. What has the foreign policy debate been? What does it mean for American foreign policy going forward? And what does it mean specifically for America and the Middle East? So in terms of the debate itself, uh, I think the way that I think about it is that we've gotten a little bit more contrast than clarity in terms of how, how this debate has unfolded. We've gotten two very, very different attitudes about the world. And I should say, as I've said, I'm a partisan. And because I am a loyal American talking about a person who may become the president of my country while I'm overseas, if you want a very loving and detailed catalog of everything that Donald Trump has ever said that was wrong, offensive, silly, etc., you can find my Twitter feed at Daniel Benaim. But here I'm going to try to be a little bit more analytical in my approach to his foreign policy. So what does this guy actually believe? He says a lot of things. What does he really believe? And here I'm indebted to a scholar named Thomas Wright, who basically says that beneath all these contradictory claims and beneath all this bluster, there are certain common ideas that run through Trump's thinking that actually go back about 30 years. The first is that America's alliance structure is out of date and that our partners are ripping us off. This is a man who 30 years ago in the New York Times was complaining that Germany and Japan were laughing at the United States, that we shouldn't be supporting other countries as our allies and guaranteeing their security. Now that same attitude ranges from we should renegotiate our partnerships to we should abandon them, but it's a strikingly continuous attitude, this idea that other countries are laughing at the United States because we support and protect other people's security and have an investment in international security. So that's the first one, that we're being ripped off by our allies, or that basically alliances in general are a ripoff. The second is mercantilism over free trade. Now, most people in the modern Republican Party in the United States are very focused on taxation as the key lever of economic policy. Trump is somebody different. He's very focused on trade. And this is actually quite unusual. And it's a real distorted reflection of the reality of the U.S. economy, where very few jobs are really changed by trade in the way that he describes. But it does tap into very real fears in the country. The third thing, that third plank of Trump's foreign policy is nationalism over multilateralism. He's very, very explicit about this. He doesn't believe in multilateral institutions. He's spoken about a false song of globalism and the importance of the nation state. Now, this taps into a trend happening in many places in the West and other places, but it's, for him, it's sort of fundamental. The fourth is authoritarian over democracy. He's somebody who has praised strongmen around the world in Russia, China, and elsewhere, and seems to kind of have a greater respect looking out at the world stage for strongmen than democratically elected leaders. And the fifth is that when war comes, uh, there's no restrictions on the use of American force. This is one that I, I don't believe in. I've written myself about what they call the myth of Donald the Dove. I don't believe that he's a dove. I think his policies would lead to conflict. But I think that it is clear in his attitude that he celebrates the idea that when the United States uses force, it should use force without feeling constrained by the rules of war. I personally don't like any of these policies, but I think you can see these as fairly consistent Trump policies. What about Clinton? 
So she, in this campaign, hasn't laid out all of her policies in one place. There's no one-stop shopping, single kind of doctrinal speech for her foreign policy. You can see a lot of the outlines, and we have a lot of uh, data based on her time as Secretary of State. I think a lot of it is continuity with Obama, with a similar view, with an emphasis on multilateralism, on an integrated approach that includes diplomacy and defense. I would say that she is less inclined. I think it's very easy to caricature Obama, and it's easy to caricature Hillary, as having different, uh, you know, in these differences. But I think, to a certain degree, she's less inclined to emphasize the restraint element and the limits of American power. You know, she said that don't do stupid stuff is not a foreign policy doctrine. It's easy to overestimate the differences, but I think they're real in this respect. She's more comfortable with pushback and confrontation with uh, countries that are behaving what we would consider poorly on the global stage, including Iran and Russia. Work with them where you can, but push back where you need to. I'd say by all accounts, she's been more hawkish throughout the process on Syria as she was in the military intervention in Libya and in the debate at the beginning of the administration on Afghanistan. So what does all this mean? I mean, it's hard to, what does this mean for how we're actually, what we should actually expect for foreign policy after this election? It's hard to say, and it's hard to say in part because this campaign is sort of, while it's been, there's been contrast, there's been less clarity. And I think part of that is because with Donald Trump, we've ended up kind of having these two different debates, one about the fundamental Should we have allies? Should we be an open country? Should we trade? Should we respect the rights of others? And then one about the trivial, what, you know, which is sort of chasing down facts and calling names and all these things. So I think you can expect a degree of continuity no matter who. And I think part of that is structural because you basically have, uh, we've had this before. Even when Bush gave way to Obama, there was a degree of continuity because certain policies had been set in place. Bush had signed an agreement on Iraq. On Afghanistan, we were already sending in more troops And so I think, in the, you know, from one day to the next, expect more continuity than you would think. Although if you look at what Obama accomplished in 2015, including the opening to Cuba, the nuclear deal with Iran, and the climate accord, actually these were the things he was talking about in 2007. So you ignore the words of a candidate at their own peril. There are going to be huge constraints, whoever is the next president. If it's Trump, I think his major constraints will be Congress, the rule of law. I have here objective reality where he's been detached from it. But, you know, it's hard to say which things he will be able to do that he's promised because there are, in fact, real real constraints, institutional constraints, legal constraints, structural constraints, etc. And there's also political constraints, which is that the internationalist consensus that underpinned American foreign policy for the last 70 years uh, is fraying in both parties. And this question about whether it's still worth it for America to maintain its investment in the world I think it still has a winning hand to play when it comes to American presidential politics, but it's a harder hand and a more difficult one. So what does it mean for the Middle East? And I'll be brief. I had a long plane ride to write all my notes, so <laughs> I don't think either of these candidates is going to unravel the new U.S. nuclear deal with Iran. I personally think it's an important nonproliferation deal, but not a complete policy. The other elements of the policy to address Iranian aggression are going to be very important to articulate. But I think even Donald Trump, whatever he promises, knows that if he unravels this deal— you end up with the worst of both worlds, an unfettered Iranian nuclear program, an unfettered Iranian economy, because sanctions won't be back, and a risk of war. On Iraq, which has been a very contentious issue in the past, uh, at this point, I think the elements of the policy are more or less set in place, uh, and the big disagreement is about who said what in 2002 and 2003, less about what we should do upon uh, taking office. Syria, I think, is a real open question, and I honestly... There's, you know, I'm not quite sure which, how to translate what's been said in the campaign into tangible policy, and it's going to be one we're going to have to discuss. You know, there's this basic question is, how will the next candidate deal with the perception? And I know that it's a widespread perception that 
America is absent from this region. I had this experience not long ago where I spent the morning at an airbase in, in a place in this region where I saw the most amazing aircraft, part of a 60-nation coalition that were doing the kind of most intense precision bombing on an enemy, uh, on ISIS imaginable. And I, I saw this kind of intense military presence. And then in the afternoon, I heard from the political leadership of that country, why is America absent from the Middle East? You know, so there is a sort of contradiction and there's a kind of fluidity to this question of whether we're present and what presence really means that I think is going to be one of the most important things the next president has to define and answer is what is American presence going to look like? What is a new normal going to look like? Because I think the nature of the problems in the region are such that an outside power can't address all of them and solve all of them. But I do think that you can expect to see the United States engaging, attempting to engage even more deeply with our traditional partners in the region than we have after a very rocky few years. So I will stop there and look forward to your questions. Abdul Khalak? Yeah, I have thousands of questions to you, Daniel, to start with. <laughs> <laughs> Millions of them, uh, actually. Well, good evening, everybody here, and thank you very much, Adam, and I'm very happy to be uh, at uh, in NYU for the second time this year. When I look at the American election today, I've been, like everybody else in the audience, I've been watching this uh, amazing year. I think we see more than two people, more than two candidates, more than two personalities. We see at stake is two sharply different values, visions, way of thinking and attitudes to human beings, to society, and what America stands for. So it's not just Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. It's much more than that, at least the way it's been presented to us, the way the American election 2016 come across to many of us outside America. So there are values, visions, attitudes, literally attitudes toward just normal people, etc., at stake, and uh, which raises a question, a big question, is what's happening back in America? There's something happening back in America, and maybe we really don't uh, understand what's going on because it's not just one person running, but he has, you know, huge followers and supporters, and he's neck to neck to the very last minute of it. So. It's much more than two candidates. It's really at stake as something much bigger when we uh, see the 2016 uh, American election. So the question uh, that is in everybody's mind, especially world leaders, especially world capital today, is, uh, you know, what if Donald Trump is the next president of the United States with all the things that he stands for? The short answer to this is that if Donald Trump to become the next president, he will bring with him a huge dose of uncertainty to global politics. Mm -hmm. A huge dose of uncertainty, uncertainty and predictability to global politics, which is already full of tension and full of divisions and full of polarization. So really, nobody has a stomach for that kind of huge dose of uncertainty that is associated with the Trump candidacy. What the world at this moment needs is anybody but Trump. <laughs> so if that's what the value Trump brings in and predictability to global politics, 
huge uncertainty to this uncertain world already. The flip side is, of course, Hillary Clinton. What does Hillary bring? And it's exactly the other view and exactly the other value. Hillary brings with her familiarity. Familiarity is written all over Clinton. People, the world capital, the world leaders know this candidate more than any other, probably, politician in Washington today. So we have two views here, two categories. One called uncertainty and a huge dose of it, and the other one called predictability, familiarity associated with, uh, with Hillary Clinton. And let me just elaborate on each one very, uh, very briefly here. You know, at this moment in time, if you look at world politics today, globally, even the region here, more so, than, than, more so this region than any other region in the world, what we have today is tensions, divisions, political polarizations, uncertainty of all sorts. Global politics is full of instability. Probably we have never, never had in this region at least so much uh, divisions as we have today. Look at Europe, the polarization that is happening there, even America. And the last thing anybody is hopeful for is a president of the only superpower around being somebody that would add one iota of extra tension, extra uncertainty, extra unpredictability. The world just cannot afford this eventuality, although it is up to you guys to do it, but eventually <laughs> this is the view to, uh, to, to contest with here. One thing that we have learned about Trump over the past one year is this guy is not going to play by the rule of the game. By the rule of the game, meaning the American politics, uh, let alone world politics. The rule of the game just kind of be flipped inside out with a Trump president and four years of Donald Trump. We have seen it on an almost a daily basis. He's a loose cannon. He says one thing Tuesday, he says another thing Wednesday. And a third thing uh, the day after. Words mean a whole lot in world politics. A world could change perspective and change attitudes and change policies sometimes. And with a president like Trump, saying one thing today and another thing today, and you don't know, he's like a, a loose cannon, just says anything that comes to his mind, the world cannot tolerate that kind of thing for four years if Donald Trump becomes uh, the next president for the United States of America. So, huge unpredictability is to be expected. Huge unpredictability for a world that just is full of unpredictables right and left, and China, and Asia, and Middle East, and Europe, and America, and all over the place. So there is a whole lot at stake to stomach and to go through for four years if Donald Trump is to be the next president of the United States of America. And instead of him, in the state of America, trying to manage the world, it's going to be up to the world how to manage this white, angry American man that is coming in <laughs> in November. And that's not my word, that's Washington Post, by the way, an article of that. Just as they called him a white, angry American. Well, that's how he's coming across to us, at least. And he's coming across to many Americans, too. A white, 
angry American. <laughs> that's too much, an angry white American. So that's Trump. What is disturbing and what is amazing, what is really, you know, something that you, Daniel and Adam maybe, and uh, our American fellows here to need to answer to, is that there are millions upon millions of what Hillary calls the t- deplorables, or whatever she calls them, are supporting it. <laughs> she apologized. <laughs> My goodness. What kind of America are we up to? This is the same America that eight years ago elected Obama, which is exactly the opposite of what we have when we look at Trump. I have yet, in this past year, I visited Washington twice, and last time we met in, in the Institute over there, I am yet to meet one American who is a hardcore Trump. Everybody says we don't vote for him, but there are millions who are voting for him. Where are all these Americans? Is there anyone in this audience brave enough to say, I am supporter of Trump? Maybe we need to hear from, uh, from them. So there is at stake a whole lot, more than one person. America and what America stands for, tolerance for God's sake has been forgotten when it comes to what we hear at least from uh, Donald Trump. And if America can't stand him and half of America can't stand him, I don't think the world can stand a day from him, let alone four or maybe maybe even more. So Trump brings in this huge dose of uh, uncertainty. And I think world leaders, honestly, and uh, being to many uh, capitals of the world, Berlin, Merkel, a close advisor who said Merkel has at her hand the refugee and the problem she has at her at her hand, Europe, but her biggest worry is if Trump becomes the president of the United States of America. She has three worries, and that is really true today if you visit most of world capital. World capital and leaders are really concerned. Trump is a major concern to many of them, at least, except for one or two, Moscow being the probably the, the example here. And is the quality that is associated with Trump, and I don't think world politics, world order, world peace is really up to, uh, to, to more uncertainty. Now, if uncertainty is, the, uh, is what you get from or with Trump, uh, I have the privilege to do, of course, but you know, that's what you get with, with Clinton, and I think it, making, it, is, it is what the world at this moment need of America. Not more of Obama. We don't need more of Obama in this part of the world, but I mean world politics in general probably favors more certainty over uncertainty, familiarity over unpredictability. And Clinton is not only a familiar face, a familiar figure in all world capital and among world leaders, but she is familiar with crises and problems more so than any other politician today in Washington. Mm-hmm. So she is doubly familiar. People are familiar with her and she is familiar with world politics and regional problems and, and, and regional leaders. And that is comforting to know somebody rather than end up with somebody that God knows not only you don't know, but he is so, you know... Uh, Uh, and predictable, a businessman that uh, walks uh, differently and looks differently and talks differently and everything else about him is just uh, different. People in this part of the world, at least, 
the Gulf, the Middle East, probably feel much more comfortable with Clinton than even Obama, by the way, let alone Trump. Because they know her in a very personal way. They engaged with her. They dealt with her. And she has exhibited some of the best that you would see in a politician, meaning she is very personable. She comes across as very personable, engaging, talkative, etc. She is knowledgeable. She is approachable. And she is reasonable. Available, reasonable, personable, approachable. These are very important categories, values, qualities, attributes that Clinton probably will bring with her. That's why I feel that world leaders, world capitals, world politics will be probably happier to see uh, a familiar face like uh, Clinton. And uh, just to end up this uh, brief uh, intervention of mine, I think, uh, as I said, this uh, 2016 uh, American presidential election has been much more than two people, two candidates, two personalities. It's about two sharply contrasting views of, 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 uh, of things and at stake much more than Hillary versus uh, Trump. And, uh, uh, and I, for one, would vote for familiarity rather than for... Uh, uh, uncertainty, especially at this moment in global history, which is full of tensions and full of polarization of all sorts, and we, didn't, we do not need more of it with uh, a president like, uh, an unpredictable president like Trump. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much for your introductory statements. You know, it's interesting, uh, Abdul Khalik, you brought up this, this uh, idea of of uncertainty being such an important thing. And one of the areas in my, my own research of deep interest is why do people uh, make decisions uh, that might be risky? And, and, and in particular, why might you choose an, an option like Trump? Why might a voter choose someone like Trump who's inherently risky and could lead to potentially uh, uh, disastrous consequences? Of course, the opposite could happen. I mean, in any risk, there's always an outside chance that, that the risk might actually turn out to not be as bad as one one would hope. I think that my priors are particularly good on this with a uh, potential President Trump, but it's there possible. And, and on that note, I'll make an act of shameless self-promotion uh, in the sense that uh, I wrote a book called More Than a Feeling, Personality Polarization and the Transformation of the U.S. Congress, now available for pre-order on Amazon coming uh, spring 2017. <laughs> um, in, in which my co-authors and I actually explain that it's actually personality traits that drive a lot of people's preferences for risk and things like this and make them more willing to roll the dice on, on someone like Trump. But I actually think this is an, a really important question about what it says about the American electorate. And so on the one hand, I think it's easy for us to, um, to, to, to as, as Hillary noted and, and as, as Dan chimed in, that she apologized for the deplorables comment, uh, to say a basket full of the, or a group of deplorables supporting him. But at the same time, in trying to understand the role, how this came to be, why why Trump came, what made Trump, you know, what 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 planted the seeds of Trump, and it's also important to remember that just a few months ago in the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders was was an insurgent candidate himself who had a groundswell of support of, of people who were really opposed to the status quo. And there's a lot of people in, in in there's this phenomenon in American politics where after a two-term president, there's sort of a mood for a change, and it's not that often that you have the same party continue in office uh, after uh, uh, two terms. Usually we have uh, alternation of power. And so we, we've got this weird condition where we have a change election occurring where we have a, one of the most well-known, 
least uncertain candidates on, on the one side, Hillary Clinton, and one of the most unknown, I mean, not unknown in a personal sense, everybody knows Donald Trump, but unknown in a sense of what he would do because he has no political experience. He's no elected office, history of elected office, uh, no background in that area. Both candidates are credibly unfavorable. One of them uh, happens to represent potential for huge change, and that's Trump. And one is a candidate of continuity. And so that's really a question. It's a question of change or continuity. And so I want to start that by posing a question to both of our panelists tonight. This sort of rise of, of populism. Right, so so in in that sense, I, I think Trump uh, and 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 to a similar extent Bernie Sanders, but for other reasons, were a product of this drive, this rising populism in the United States, and not just in the U.S. I mean, this is a phenomenon that has taken over huge parts of Western and Eastern Europe as well, and other parts of the world. And so, I wanted to get your perspective on on how you think the outside world looks in and, and understands the populism that that's taken this election. So, we'll start with Dan. Sure. Well. I will speak more to what it looks like, I guess, from from the United States. I mean, I think it's important to have a little bit of context. I, you know, I was talking about the cracked funhouse mirror, and in some ways, the strangest part of the world that this funhouse mirror projects is an America that doesn't feel like America, that is maybe a little meaner and a little bit less civil and a little bit uh, less generous to other countries. And I think America is still America, and I personally think that what you're going to see in the wake of this election, that this is kind of an oscillation in a very long cycle uh, in the country between social progress and reaction. And I think you're going to see a correction where in five years, a lot of people who voted for Trump won't even admit that they had ever supported him and he'll be kind of quickly jettisoned and forgotten. That's my optimistic prediction. So I think there are reasons for optimism and pessimism in terms of as a Hillary supporter and as an American citizen who believes in a civil electorate. I think the number of Americans who look at Trump and don't approve of him, the number of Americans who look at Trump and think, you know, whether whoever I would vote for, I don't approve of these policies, I don't approve of his rhetoric on civil rights, I don't approve of his rhetoric on Muslim Americans, anything like that, are astronomically high without historical precedent for a major party nominee. So that, I think, is a cause for optimism. I personally think that there's a, a very better than 80% chance that Hillary Clinton will be the next president. She has a superior campaign organization, superior field, superior polls, superior skills, superior fundamentals, superior demographics. And I think all of this will make for an election where we have to confront the possibility that Trump could have been the president, but we don't end up having to confront that reality. But I do think there's a cause for pessimism. And the pessimism uh, I wrote about it in an article uh, called Trumpism Goes Global. And, you know, the way that I described it is basically to say that there are a series of conditions that have happened in Western countries that are particularly ripe for globalism. You know, what I say is you don't necessarily need the, the Trump haircut to have the Trump ideology, although in the case of someone like Boris Johnson, you're kind of dangerously close. There, so there's this wave of nativist populism that is happening, that I think is happening for four reasons. The first is consolidated economic inequality, and that consolidated economic inequality over a generation leads to these sort of geographic divides where you have or London votes against Brexit and rural areas vote for it. In America, you have parts of the country that have their life expectancy actually going down while other parts of the country are booming economically. So I, I think this kind of geographic and economic divide uh, and consolidated economic inequality is something that leaves the people who feel that they've been left out angry and ripe for a demagogic champion, even if it's the most unlikely person in the world in the form of a billionaire from New York City. But Inequality is the first. The second is demographic upheaval. You see this all over Europe with Syrian refugees and uh, immigration from within Europe. 
You see it in the United States from Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, basically what they call the browning of America, which is that a kindergarten class in a public school today may be majority-minority and the rest of the country is heading in that direction. And it creates for people, uh, white Americans who are used to a certain privileged place in society, combined with this economic problem, real anxiety about the future. The third element of Trumpism in America and the world is unfettered access to social media. So you basically have a demagogue able to reach people via Twitter in an unfiltered way at three in the morning or five in the morning, whatever the case may be, which I guess would be an appropriate time to be receiving a tweet here in the UAE from America. You know, basically you have this, there's a lack of a filter. People don't, the news used to perform this function for a long time and a trusted newscaster would basically say, well, that's beyond the pale. And that person's trust would, would carry sufficient weight that the candidate might lose support. And then the last one is a sort of brittle politics, which unfortunately we have in the United States in part because of the degree of political polarization. You would not have a Donald Trump without a Barack Obama in the sense that he is part of a reaction. You have the first African-American president, tremendous historical social progress, uh, and then you have a kind of counter-reaction, which is why I'm optimistic that even if Trump becomes president, the, the natural sort of Hegelian synthesis, the thesis and antithesis will lead to somebody better after him although I don't think we'll get there. But I, the other one is Mitch McConnell, because basically the idea that for the last eight years we've had a, a Republican Party that basically stated that their number one goal was to make the president fail was enough to ensure that some of the social policy changes that we had hoped to have accomplished weren't able to be accomplished, and also enough to ensure that a certain portion of the country would be angry at the country at the government for failing to deliver these things. So I think you basically take those four things— that consolidated inequality, that demographic upheaval, social media, and brittle institutions, and you see them in Europe, where it's an unaccountable European government that, that is bothering people in, in many of the countries. These things, unfortunately, exist in different places. And I think one of the key things that internationalists and progressives like myself are, in Western countries are going to have to do is develop a toolkit that responds better to these than the one we have. So I see these forces happening globally, and I see them happening in the United States. I think in the United States, the polarization of this election will continue for some time to come. I don't think that the specific beliefs that Trump espouses will outlast his place in the political arena so much as this larger area of grievance. So I think that's maybe, if you could call that optimism, then I'm uh, fully optimistic. But uh, there's a lot of work to do. Not as optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> and why? I think uh, I see less tolerant America, 2016, than it was just 10 years ago. Less tolerant Europe today than it was a decade or two ago. Less tolerant West in general, about foreigners, about Muslims, about others. I think these are very deep, disturbing trends in America, in Europe, in the West, and extremists, as much as we have them here, are flourishing all over the place for whatever reason. Maybe you have the, the, the answer to it. So when I see less tolerant America, less tolerant Europe, less tolerant West, I remember that a century ago, it was Europe that taught me and taught the world to be tolerant. Mm -hmm. And tolerant, tolerance was a sacred value ingrained in, in the 350 million Americans. And it seems that many of them have forgotten to be tolerant of the others, to be tolerant of the Muslims, and to be tolerant of foreigners. And I think what Trump 
brings with him this historical wave of being less tolerant America. And that's what disturbs me the most and what bothers us outside America the most. Moving, tilting more and more away from the mainstream to the more right-wing, right, uh, radical right-wing even to, in Europe. Look, look, look what we have in Europe. So many right-wing uh, parties are uh, coming up with their uh, anti-foreign manifestations. So I think there is something really deeper and you need to scratch uh, a little bit beyond the, the, the appearance of it to see it. And it is a bit disturbing. So I'm not really very optimistic that, you know, Uh, Trump is just uh, a fad or whatever, a political uh, aberration uh, in American history. I think he might be here for some times to come because what is driving it is something deeper, not just in American society, but in the West in general at this moment in history. And the world is watching and it's not settling very well. And it's giving a different perspective about Europe of a century ago, about Europe, the tolerant Europe, the tolerant West. Now I look up uh, an American, a European friend, face to face, I say, you are just as intolerant as the rest of us. You need to really uh, look into what's happening in America. You know, economically, it doesn't make sense because economically the growth is there, uh, unemployment is down, American economy is sound, all the records is great. So what's, what's the justification for Trump except for elements of racism, element of intolerance that is seeping in and sinking in, and it is very disturbing. So I'm not very optimistic. <laughs> Now, can I respond to yeah, that? Yeah, go for it. I mean, I, first of all, I think, I think you're right to be very concerned. And I, I think maybe I'm going to leave my European friends to defend themselves. I think the U.S. <laughs> has a certain resilience built in because of our model, which is that national identity is based on citizenship and a civic identity rather than an ethnic identity and, or a religious identity. And if you look at the history of the United States, it's a history of... of uh, This, you always had this ideal of universal human rights, and you always had the exceptions. And first the exceptions were slaves, then the exceptions were women, they were Italians, they were Germans, they were, they were gay people, they were, there were always exceptions to this universal rights and protection. And over time, there were always, every time there was an advance, there was a reaction within the society. But if you look at the longer picture and the larger sweep so far, and every trend It's a trend until it's broken. But if you look at that trend so far, there's a resilience and a perfectibility built into the system where you can see that just as Obama led to Trump, Trump in some ways will lead to, to some kind of reaction that, that will uh, try to move the society forward. I really, I don't know if that's an article of faith uh, or an analytical point, but I think it squares, I think it's fairly consistently applied to to the last 150 years of U.S. history, and I believe it will be applied to the, the next period. Europe, I think, has a different problem because their national identity is based on, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years in a particular village uh, in some cases, and, and, and suddenly there's a different group of people that they're sharing the space with. I think Americans are surprised somewhat to realize that 15 years after 9-11, we still have a serious and very present terrorism problem in our country. And I think Europeans are dealing with this too. Uh, and that, that is a sort of function that, that is maybe less linear. But I, I really do believe, at least in the case of the United States, that we are absolutely resilient enough to handle this issue and come back a stronger and more cohesive society. Not immediately and not on November 10th, but over time.
Well, regardless of, I think, whether or not the resilience shows up, and I think the optimist in me wants it to, I think the reality is that, that to a great extent, there's been damage done. And uh, as, we've, as we've seen in the campaign, Trump has gotten in pro- protracted Twitter uh, conflicts with people all over the world, not the least of which Aloui bin Talal. And, and, and on that note, I really, I, I, I wonder, regardless of who wins, regardless of whether we have a Trump administration or a Clinton administration, and I'll invite both panelists to comment on this, and I'll start with Abdul Khalik, do you think that, that U.S. Gulf relations are, are, are irreparably strained, regardless of, 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 of who wins, just by virtue of the, the sort of the nasty, invective nature of the campaign, what Trump has said about uh, Muslims both domestically and internationally, and, 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 and just the sort of the vitriol that's come from, from as a consequence of, of his, his campaign? Well, uh, the last eight years of Obama has been a very difficult uh, phase in Gulf-American relationship. We thought that it was just an Obama thing. But then came just up, and we saw the vote in Congress in both houses, the Senate and the representatives, overwhelmingly, by vast majority, supporting, overriding the veto, and hence supporting the, uh, the law, with all the good rationales of sympathizing with the victims of 9-11, etc. But it also showed that there is a deep anti Saudi Arabia manifestation, not just in the Congress, but apparently throughout in America generally. And it is, we see it in editorials, we see it in articles, we see it in everything. So I think we thought for a while, you know, this troubled US GCC, US Saudi Arabia is specifically uh, Obama and it will go away once he goes, uh, no, no matter who comes after. But uh, the JASTA also just give us indication that, no, there is something much more deeper in the political establishment as well as in the, uh, in the media and American society at large. So I am also, you know, at the stage to really start to rethink the fundamentals of the relationship. We had a good relationship over the past uh, 70 years, 67 years, and uh, it was mutually beneficial. We needed America for security purposes. America needed us for a variety of reasons, oil being uh, one of them, and stability, etc. But I think we are at the time in Gulf Capital thinking seriously that less of America is good. Less of America, not total withdrawal like 1971 British, uh, but I think less of America in every aspect of our life. Probably we need to prepare ourselves eventually, not right now, eventually for a post-America Gulf, which means 10% less of America in our uh, midst. And I think there is a great deal of preparation for this next stage. So, uh, you know, the JASTA just put in risk uh, seven years of Saudi-American relationship, and uh, if there is reconsideration, that is probably is going to be welcomed. But it's a very tough time for the relationship between us and Washington. Well, I guess if Dr. Abdelkhalik is going to be the pessimist again, maybe I'll rise to the bait and attempt <laughs> a degree of optimism. I, I think it's true that this has been a very hard period for U.S. Gulf relations. I, I think that if the late King Abdullah had known when he got up to meet President Obama for the first time in June 2009, the decisions that were going to confront the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, that there was going to be an Egyptian revolution where America would would reluctantly side with the protesters over a longtime partner, that there was going to be a, uh, 
a red line in Syria where, in the end, we removed the chemical weapons but didn't actually use force to enforce the red line. If we had known that there was going to be negotiations with Iran that would lead to a nuclear deal, I'm not sure he would have gotten out of bed to take the meeting with, with the president. I think this has been a very difficult time and, and, and a time that kind of, you can debate the merits of each of these decisions, and several of them I supported. However, you can uh, you take them in aggregate, and it's clear that they raised significant questions about relations between the United States and the Gulf. You hear this complaint that America is absent or America is present, and it's about kind of 10% right to the right or 10% to the left. But America is still a major, a major, major presence. The U.S. security guarantee remains a big one. But I think no matter who is the president, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, or anybody, there are some basic disagreements and basic questions about the future to consider, one of which is what Dr. Abdelhalik was talking about, which is, what is the future role of the United States vis-a-vis -vis the countries of the region? The countries of the region today, including this country and including Saudi Arabia, are much more capable, much more active, uh, proactive in, in their own, shaping their own region than they have been in the past. Uh, that may lead to a different role for the United States. The United States, I think, still plays a major role in preventing interstate war, in preventing a nuclear-armed Iran, in preventing a war, direct war between Iran and Saudi Arabia like you used to have 25 years ago with Iraq and Iran or Iran and Kuwait. We, we have that ability to, to play a deterrent role in preventing interstate war for the most part. But the, what is happening inside societies, divisions inside societies, uh, civil conflict, sectarian conflict, proxy conflict, the U.S. foreign policy toolkit is not really ready-made to solve these problems in a way that they're, in a way, problems that require much more ownership from the region. So exactly how to strike this balance of less America, more America, is, is going to be one of the fundamental questions. I think about it in terms of defining presence. We heard so much complaints about absence while we were doing so many different things, signing a historic nuclear deal, giving $3 billion to this country, $1 billion to that country, doing refuel for Saudi Arabia and Yemen, which is an enormously controversial program in the United States. But uh, many of these things. Uh, so this question of how to define a present America is, I think, really one of the major questions when it comes to the United States and the GCC, because you know, you, you're, there's both a desire for more and a desire for different. Figuring out how to, how to reconcile that is, is going to be one of the really thorny problems. I, I think at one point, uh, Daniel, we wished for more America and we ended up with Iraq. Yeah. A complete disaster, a strategic blunder, spent trillions of dollars and that's what you ended up with. I'll stop you if I disagree. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so that was when we wished for more America. Then we wished for less America after Iraq and we got Syria. And look at we have what we have there in Syria, complete another blunder and tragedy and human catastrophe. So more America, less America. Tell us what do we wish for? I don't know. <laughs> what do we need of America? Sometimes yeah, you you look for more, you get uh, bad and you, uh, result, and you, you wish for less and you get bad result. And if you look at this last 60, 70 years of American engagement with the Middle East. Let's just go, not just the recent ones, even the far, uh, all the way back to the 1950s. America insisted completely, totally, at every single state to deny the Palestinian their right to a state. Uh, that was, I mean, this is the mother of all wrong engagement that America had. So starting from there, coming back through Iraq, coming back from 
uh, coming uh, all the way down to Syria. The question is, with all the millions of dollars you spend on experts and think tanks and, and, and understanding, it seems that America has mis com completely misunderstood this region. And in and, and, and every turn and every uh, aspect during the last 60, 70 years, it really mismanaged its, uh, its policy in this region. And this is disastrous. Do you have any explanation? Do you have any views? What, what is going on? <laughs> wow, do I have an explanation? Look, I think to put the onus on America to manage any other region of the world is to ignore the principal actors of that region as the principal drivers of their own history. Uh, And I think that it, that puts a great deal of weight on the United States as opposed to the governments of the region who have been complicit in many of these mistakes and problems and whose own choices have had a great deal to do with it. I think the, the war in Iraq was a blunder of historic proportions that damaged the United States foreign policy. And in fact, it's the reason that I got into American foreign policy. I think you're right that there's a danger of overlearning the lessons of the past uh, and applying them to the future in the wrong ways. We as the United States are a young country and, uh, and I think certainly try to learn as we perform on the global stage. But I'm not sure which superpower's record uh, looks so much better in, based on their intentions and based on their behavior when it comes to this region, whether it's the British or the French or which other power has done a better job. I accept that America's stewardship of, of the Middle East, of our role in the Middle East, has been very imperfect. Uh, but I think the responsibility is shared. Well, if that's what we got uh, from seasoned presidents in the past, imagine what we would get if Trump becomes the president. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Could maybe, maybe that's the answer we've been waiting for. <laughs> and on that note, so I'm going to ask the panelists one more question, um, and then we'll open the floor for questions from you. And actually, I'm going to, I'm going to go to uh, uh, the Dr. Abdelhalik here, because uh, you, you mentioned the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and so that's one more uh, regional, uh, but really a global issue um, that I think is important to consider for either a President Clinton or President Trump. Do you see, under either of those potential candidates, uh, becomes president in January, any meaningful solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict being mediated by the United States? Short answer, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. And probably for one good reason, and it has to do with Netanyahu and his complete, total refusal to come to any peaceful negotiation. Netanyahu is not interested in peace. His government is not interested in peace. Israel today is not interested in engaging even the Palestinians. So you don't have a, an Israeli partner for peace. You have a government who is interested in settlement and more settlement and taking and grabbing more Palestinian land and denying Palestinians of, uh, of any chances to build a viable independent state. So whether it's Trump, Clinton, or even whoever there, I don't think anybody is capable of forcing Netanyahu to sit down today with the Palestinians, with the Arabs, to, to, to engage in peaceful negotiations. I think the peace is on... Uh, Uh, on a frigid uh, uh, path and is going to stay there as long as Netanyahu and his government are in power. Dan, would you like to play the part of the optimist again? <laughs> I've run out of optimism, my friends. <laughs> uh, look, I think that's right. I think there is, there is not political will on the Israeli side, but I think it's important to recognize that... Uh, look, I mean, I'm not going to defend Bibi Netanyahu's record on peace because I, I'm not. Even if... 
Prime Minister Netanyahu were actually really willing to to engage in a serious discussion about a final you know resolution to all these claims. It's not even clear to me that even then, the Palestinian side of this equation, which is divided, whose leaders have had opportunities in the past to sign deals, which may have been imperfect, but it's not even clear to me that even if he were exactly the right man for this job, which I don't think that he is for the job of making peace in this way, I don't think he's proven to be. Even if he were, it's not clear to me that that this situation would be ripe with a, a president in the 12th year of a four-year term to, to make peace in, in this way. So I think, uh, you know, this requires a great deal of humility and a certain amount of persistence because the necessity of a two-state solution is still there. You look for a different option that's not a two-state solution. You look around, you look around, and you come back, and you find yourself, you've walked in a full circle, and you think, okay, how are we going to make a two-state solution work? There's no really good other option out there. So I think part of what the next phase of U.S. policy is going to be is going to be figuring out how to protect the viability of a two-state solution. That means preventing the full encirclement of the territory of a Palestinian state by settlements that would make it geographically impossible. That means, uh, it also means, I think, economic vitalization in the Palestinian areas. And the center where I work, the Center for American Progress, has written reports about steps that should be, that the United States, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority should take and and others to to, uh, revitalize the Palestinian economy. This can't be a substitute for peace. It just won't be a substitute for peace. And eventually you'll run into the lack of of, uh, progress on the peace process. But it's a necessary part of, of the lives and dignity of the people involved and, and a future ingredient to creating a viable Palestinian economy that's not based on a permanent occupation. So there's a lot of work to do, and on this one, I'm afraid I have to join uh, in the pessimism. I don't think it's uh, I'm near at hand. Well, welcome to the camp. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so at this point, we'd like to welcome uh, audience participation. So if you have a question, I will surrender this microphone, and uh, we'll go around, and I will try to keep my eye around the room so we can make sure that... Uh, everyone is adequately represented. Yeah, my question's for Dan. Um, since you've worked with Hillary before, what do you think her counterterrorism policies will be from what we're seeing now with indirect support with Mali all the way to the Philippines, to drone strikes in uh, places like Yemen and Pakistan? You know, it's, it's a really good question, and I'm going to do my best to... Uh, give the most comprehensive answer I can, but I would refer you back. She gave a speech last November at the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, which outlined her her, uh, multi-pronged strategy to deal with ISIS, and I think that, and with terrorism writ large. I think, you know, that's probably the the right place to look for a a good real overview. I mean, I think you start off with a strategy that she's articulated to deal with ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and then it's a great deal of intelligence cooperation with other countries. I think she probably continues the programs, many of the counterterrorism programs that have been put in place by Obama, uh, and then continues this focus on working through partners whenever possible, rather than directly as the United States, which has been the policy. She's called for an intelligence surge uh, to, um, to confront ISIS in particular, and uh, to deal with some of the problems that we've seen, like the problem of lone wolf terrorism, where people are radicalized over the internet, calling for a kind of intensive study, basically, to figure out how this terrorist problem is shifting and metastasizing. Uh, And I think the other part of her policy that's fairly basic is just to cultivate a climate of respect under the rule of law and respect, you know, uh, as a matter of, uh, of policy and attitude for the, by the United States for the peace-loving and decent Muslims of the world who uh, 
will be, we know that ISIS would like to deny a gray zone that, that, that allows Muslims to live in, in, uh, peacefully and coexist with others in the West. And the idea that a U.S. leader would have that same aim of, as ISIS of, of preventing us from having uh, pluralistic societies that welcome Muslims is frankly disturbing. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I so strongly supported Hillary over Trump. I think, I think you can expect a great degree of continuity in, in, in that respect and, and an emphasis on the parts of this that involve partnering closely with Muslim countries to uh, address terrorism, partnering with Muslim communities inside the United States to address it as well. And I think that's one of the major differences you see between the two candidates. Thank you for your, um, you know, comments and uh, insights. First of all, you know, as, uh, you know, someone who's watching the Amer American presidential, you know, I see it like a reality show. Uh, you know, I see some some people. I mean, this is more personal. You know, Hillary saying something about Trump and Trump saying some uh, something about Hillary, and it is like you don't hear policies, you don't hear economic, you know, plans, anything. I just hear, you know, this is like someone putting hands. The second thing is, I think part of uh, uh, Trump, you know, being you know uh, more supported is. Maybe fear, you know, uh, you know the immigration, you know what happening, the you know about Syria, um, the you know what he mentioned about Mexico, uh, and what he what uh, raising of ISIS and some I think some incident that's happened in the US. I have just one question to Dr. Abdelkhaliq. You know, you said uh, Hillary is more about familiar familiarity and you know uh, around the world. Um, U.S. policy toward Iran, you know, from as you know, someone from the Gulf, you know, the sanction that's been, you know, uh, I mean, have been removed from Iran, and you know, with Iran engaging, you know, in Iraq and in Syria and and everywhere, how you can explain, you know, this one because uh, and you know, shifting for, to, from Saudi Arabia and the, the oil, you know, uh, prices. Could you? What is your perspective on this one? Thank you. I agree with you. I think there is some element of politics of fear in this whole American uh, presidential campaign. People are fearful of the other, of terrorism, of uh, extremism, of Muslims, etc. Uh, there is to it, so I, I think that's a very valid point. And I think it's the same thing happening in Europe too. Uh, some are very you know, justified to be fearful of their values, of their ethics, of their society, protective, etc. So there is that. But that's just one element of, of many. And I don't agree at all that this is a reality show of any sort. This is, this is much more at stake than simple reality. When it comes to Iran, uh, I think many in Washington, starting with Obama, have this uh, illusion that there is something called moderate Iran. And they thought that going through with the nuclear deal, with strengthening the moderates, the reasonables, the etc. in Iran, and they thought this is the way to go to change Iran. A year later, we're finding out that is just not true. The hardliners, the radicals, the etc. represented by the supreme leader uh, are, and, uh, and the revolutionary guard, etc. today are just as radical as in control, as in the driver's seat, as they were a year ago, if not more, Rouhani and the moderates are uh, today are uh, less in control and uh, probably uh, you know up for a very tough election. That whole notion of moderate Iran is what drove Obama, and what drove many of the uh, 
you know, the, the deal, the nuclear deal. And it is also uh, the bet that many still probably believe in, in Europe and in, in, in Washington, which I think is completely, it will, it will prove to be uh, not true. There is no such thing as uh, moderate Iran. They are not in the driver's seat. The, the, the guy in the driver's seat, Khamenei, is very uh, radical and very extremist and clerical and hangs on to revolutionary tenets of the 1979 Iran. Second uh, answer to, briefly to this, uh, Adam, is that... Uh, there was also this very personal legacy thing that Obama had, that, you know, he wanted a repetition of uh, Kissinger, Nixon, uh, China uh, story when it came to Iran, and he thought he would leave uh, a legacy of a sort, integrating Iran into world politics and turning Iran into a normal state rather than a revolutionary uh, state. And uh, I, I think so, that, that was very personal. As a result, I don't think Clinton and let alone Trump have any of this tilt or bias or uh, uh, favoritism to, to, to Iran. So we will end up, even if it is Clinton, a more modified version of Obama uh, when it comes uh, to Iran. Uh, one thing is true uh, during all of Obama's uh, era, especially lately, Gulf states did not see eye to eye with Washington on issue of Iran and moderate Iran and uh, and all of the uh, the packages uh, surrounding the nuclear deal. Can I comment on that? I, I just have a, a little bit of a different perspective, having worked in the White House during this time of the negotiation of the deal. What I saw was sort of a few different lenses in a way. I'd say 80% this was a deal about nuclear proliferation in which the United States, having spent many years at war in the Middle East, uh, since 9-11 essentially, uh, did not want a military solution if, if there was a diplomatic solution available with Iran. And under Hillary Clinton and President Obama managed to put together massive sanctions, which didn't exist when there was a more confrontational policy, took that good faith when Iran didn't take their hand back, created a massive program of unprecedented uh, economic and diplomatic pressure, and bought 10 or 15 years of intensive monitoring and restraints on Iran's nuclear program, which I think, for at least the near, the near term, will, will hold. I think that that was the 80% of what was driving this, was a desire to find a peaceful solution to prevent nuclear proliferation in the Middle East. Because however bad this problem is today, whatever we don't like in Iran's behavior, if Iran were able to back it up with a nuclear weapon, one can only imagine how much nightmarishly worse it would be, let alone the other countries that would decide to themselves go nuclear in response to a nuclear-armed Iran. So I think there was a very strong non-proliferation basis for this agreement. Then I think there was a question. And I think it was a question about whether an agreement like this would create the possibility, not immediately, and I think you're right that there sometimes is an overemphasis in the discussion on Rouhani and, and Zarif as opposed to Khamenei, uh, in terms of the who has power inside Iran, where I think the power really does seem to reside with the hardliners to a greater extent. But a question about, have we created a path in the future that Iran could choose that would be a path of greater integration and of more responsible behavior on the world stage? And I think that's the sort of long bet. But, I, but what's crucially important to point out is that I don't think that that bet was necessary to be successful for the Iran deal to make sense. I think as a non-proliferation agreement, it made a great deal of sense in its own right. And I think that the story of the president as a sort of 
messianic figure or trying to be a Kissinger or anything, to me is less important than, first of all, this basic need to avoid another war in the Middle East. And second of all, leaving open this future possibility that, I mean, Khamenei is many of the things that Dr. Dr. Abdechalak described him as. He's also very intransigent, very very anti-American, very much in power, and very old. So we'll have to see uh, what the future holds in terms of Iran's leadership. You know, I think they did consider the Gulf, but, but I, and I think they had many, many discussions with Gulf leaders about this issue, and they came to a different conclusion. They received the advice of leaders in the Gulf, which ranged from mildly supportive to strongly critical, and they made a decision based on their national interests in consultation with all, many countries in the region. And even if they disagreed with it, they, I think, will benefit over time from not having a nuclear-armed Iran as a neighbor. Uh, good evening. I'd like to address uh, Mr. Dan. During the presidencies all over 50, 60 years ago, how, long, how much do you see as the president being the actual decision-maker in all, of, all the policies happening in the United States and abroad, foreign policies, as a vis-a-vis, you know, the Congress, the Senate, the advisors about, around the president? Uh, is the president really having the final decisions and happening or is he seeking advices from lobbyists, corporations around him that you know, actually support him on his campaigns, the uh, republics, you know, the, sorry, the parties around him. And second question is, there was a book written by Mr. George Friedman, the founder of Stratfor. And he mentioned something, you know, Stratfor was a big supporter of, you know, geolo- geopolitics for the United States. How, and he said that mostly United States foreign policy thrives on chaos around the world. How much of that is true? Thank you. Those are two really fascinating questions. I could probably write you a book on each one if I had enough time. Uh, On the question of the role of the president, I think it's a complex one because you have very serious institutional constraints, legal constraints, political constraints. The president calls together his cabinet and he asks for advice from the military and asks for advice from diplomats, from intelligence, from others. Here's, you know, what, what will a certain policy mean for voters? He has to consider a relationship with Congress. He has relationships around the world. As I mentioned with Trump, you're accountable on some level to objective reality, you know, and the basic laws of physics and nature, even regardless of what you say. So I think there, there, it's not like you can remake the world as the president, but you do have a great deal of authority, and your judgment matters a tremendous amount. Your judgment and your priorities to set an affirmative agenda for the United States or for, you know, for any country matters a huge amount. My limited experience looking at foreign policy watching, for example, the attempted transitions in various Middle Eastern countries after 2011, seems to me that there are all these factors and it's very easy to reduce politics to like the collision of a series of billiard balls, you know, in which each country is sort of opaque and thick and non-transparent. But the reality is something closer to what Shakespeare had right 500 years ago, which is that human nature still matters absolutely at the core of, of these things. And I think in the U.S. case, you can see Obama's, I can personally see Obama's own tendencies, predilections, attitudes, strengths, weaknesses, handwritten all over the way that American foreign policy has gone over the last eight years. I think personally, mostly for the better. I know some may disagree, but I think, I think the presidency in the U.S. system matters tremendously, especially in foreign policy. You can't spend money and you can't write laws without Congress. And the president, Obama, has gone up against the absolute limits of that and trying to, without having the legal framework in place, help the children of immigrants to the United States gain certain access to higher education, to uh, address climate change uh, without help from Congress, 
by regulating the electricity sector in the United States through uh, executive regulation. These are kind of at the out, dealing with guns, these are at the outer edges of what's possible without Congress. And he's had to spend a lot of time there because of Congress's choice to spend a good part of the last eight years trying to restrict his action. But So you can't do it alone, but you're by far the most important person in shaping the priorities and vision of the U.S. government, and especially in foreign policy. Just a, a quick addition here to what uh, Dan has said on this uh, role of a president versus the role of the institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Bob Woodward's book uh, about, uh, uh, about Bush, we see in how much the president had this gut feeling about just going in Iran regardless yeah. of the advices, uh, uh, the attitudes of uh, people around him. Just a week ago, Kerry has admitted that uh, he was for military action to back up diplomacy in Syria, but Obama was categorically against any military intervention and weakened Kerry and weakened, etc. So what it boils down to is that the president's really, not just anybody, especially when it comes, as you said, Dan, when it comes to foreign policy, his values, his personality, his, his, his thinking is very important and it could easily override all the advisors of the advisors around him especially in the foreign policy where he has, uh, you know, vast, uh, vast, uh, you know, terrain to to, to select from. But even internally, we have seen time and again that the president sets the mood for the nation too. He, when he comes out saying, this is where United States have to, what United States have to do, he really influences Uh, and shapes uh, public attitudes and public uh, mood, and hence uh, it has the impact on... uh, So never underestimate power of the decision-taker. There is, yes, there is the decision-making process and everybody is involved, etc., but at the end of the day, there is one person, he goes and sleeps and sleeps over, and he comes the next day, and he has to take the president, and that is the United States president, not the institution. Very well said. Um, Hi. First of all, I want to thank you all for your experience and your knowledge. We learned from you. Um, Before that, I just want to, I have a slight comment on the U.S. presidency, and I am still optimistic that Hillary Clinton is going to be president, considering the U.S. voter turnout and usually it's quite low, and usually who goes and votes are the middle class or elite educated um, Americans. So I still have hope Hillary is going to be president, hopefully. Um, So my interests lay precisely in the Gulf region, and back in April in foreign affairs, I read an article that says, um, that was titled, The U.S. Has No Gulf Allies. And basically, it states that we are partners, Gulf states are partners with the United States, but we don't have a mutual defense treaty or any sort of written alliance that will make America obligated to defend us in the future. A defense treaty between the U.S. and Turkey based on their strategic place and the region and all that. So my question is, Um, For the next president, do you believe there would be an actual alliance between the United States and the Gulf region, especially with JASTA, with the counterterrorism acts, with 
the turmoil happening in the region? Is there a possibility for that? And if not, will the Gulf region push for it? Because I believe it's crucial and important to have a set of written treaties to defend us in the future, considering all the wars and turmoil happening. So thank you. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> Look, I think it's, it's a really good question. It's a really interesting question. Having been a speechwriter for the State Department, I know that the words matter and the difference between a partner and an ally uh, is something different. And it's true that an ally, in the technical language, an ally is a country that has a legally binding treaty obligation with the United States, uh, whether it's the NATO treaty or East Asia or others. And a partner, it's another country. Among partners, however, Gulf states have a unique place because we actually have the Camp, Camp David statement by President Obama, which essentially calls for the United States to protect Gulf countries in the case of external aggression. And that is a document, memorialized document, statement of policy that gets directly at this question. The question for an alliance is something really quite different. And I think it's, you know, it's a really, I've not heard it asked quite this way as to whether there should be a formal military alliance. Uh, at this point in history, the, the, uh, the United States Congress, which would have to approve such a treaty, would probably be disinclined to do it. But it's also the case that many of our allies, the overwhelming majority of our allies around the world are democracies, and that this has been a part of the way that America has, has chosen how to make these treaty committees. Some, like Turkey, there's reason to be gravely concerned about the health of their democratic practice and many of their other foreign policy choices, to be frank, that, that have left us uh, on different sides of different positions. So I think being an ally isn't perfect either, I'm afraid. But I think for now it's a partnership and the question is how to make the most of it and how to take these commitments that have been made by the President Obama and honor them and sustain them and put countries in the strongest possible position to make the most of them, uh, which is maybe an unsatisfying answer, but I think it's the reality. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming, and I want to give a special thanks to our distinguished panelists here. If we give them a round of applause. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.org nyu.edu slash institute.